Father, we thank you so much for this, this day. And uh, what an absolutely gorgeous, beautiful morning. Um, so still, mist coming off the water of the lake. Lord, the handiwork, the painting you have put across the landscape here, shouting your existence. We thank you for it. We thank you for the health that you have given us that we can enjoy this. Lord, as we have been exploring your word, going back in time, experiencing, in some cases, very difficult things like crucifixion, wonderful things as the resurrection, seeing exactly who you are, dear Jesus, what, what the characteristics of you are, your attributes. We thank you. And now as Father, we come into this, the last in this series. I pray that you again, your, your spirit do the teaching here. That, Lord, I, I pray that I'll be able to communicate this well, and I ask for your help here. But I know it is the spirit of God that does the teaching. It is your work that changes lives, that impacts us. It's not what I do up here. It's what your spirit does here and at Fort. And Lord, I just pray that you would just glorify yourself. Just bring glory to your name. And that wonderful name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as we get into this, I want to read out of Matthew chapter 16 for just a moment. In Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21, a new paragraph is starting in the ancient Greek, in the original text here. And by the way, if you're, some people have asked, how do I know when a new paragraph actually takes place? Because so many different translations have paragraphs all over the place. There is a very easy way of doing this. If you have a New American Standard Bible, um, you might notice if, uh, does anyone, I'm just curious, how many people here have a New American Standard? Just raise your hand. You, okay, okay, I see, oh wow, there's a lot of hands, okay. You probably have noticed this, but those who have not, do not have one, let me explain what's going on. If you have a New American Standard, what, um, on occasion you'll see the, the letter of the verse, or the number of the verse, or the first letter of a word, or the first word, will be in bold print. And most of the time you read through this, you don't even notice this. But the New American Standard was set up to do this. They designed it to do this. And every time you see that bold print means in the, in the ancient text, that's a new paragraph. So that's why I'm able to do that. Plus, if you have an interlinear Bible, you can see it yourself. But there was a new paragraph starting in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. It's saying, and what's going on? Jesus is starting to foretell his death and his resurrection. Just what we just got done talking about this week. The, the crucifixion, he's, getting, you know, he's talking about it, and he's telling about his resurrection. He's foretelling this. And then, as he get, you get down here, you get to verse 24, and Jesus immediately, after, after talking about this, now he... He says this. Then the disciples told, uh, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is not going to come with his angels in the, is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is a profound statement that Jesus is making. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what this is going to be talking, we're going to be talking about this morning. That's our topic. As our theme is this summer, follow me as I follow Christ, imitate me, as I told you on the first night. The actual word is imitates in Greek, meaning where we get the word mimicry, to imitate something. Um, so imitate me as I imitate Christ is what Paul is following, but follow me as I follow Christ. The thing is, the ultimate person we're following is Christ. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, there are many views <laughs> in today's world. There are so many different views on what it means to follow Jesus. Um, many preachers and teachers uh, throughout the ages have defined it in so many different various ways, um, which has led to a lot of confusion, no doubt, um, on what following Jesus actually means. Well, this is not going to be one of those lessons or a sermon, no. Um, I mean, I could easily give you my opinion. Who cares what I think? Let's go back. Jesus told us specifically here, he's telling his disciples what it means to follow. There were three dynamics that he mentions. And let's see what Jesus is talking about. What is he saying? Let's get it directly from what God said. That's what we're going to do this morning. What is Jesus' impression of follow me? That's our topic. So, looking at Matthew, again, chapter 16, verse 24 through 26, that passage I just read, but it starts off here. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, coming after me to follow, of course, but anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That is our key passage for this morning. And actually, it's the pinnacle of what we've been talking about this week. Um, it says, take up your cross. We now know what that is and what that means um, in the form of crucifixion. Jesus is, and is predicting his, his own demise here, that he would be crucified. So, yeah. And I, I will tell you, uh, admit to you that this is a a passage that we could do many, many lessons on. I mean, if you want to stay for another couple of weeks, we could just keep going through here. Um, no, Fort's not going to let us do that. Um, there's other people coming in this weekend, but boy, there's so much stuff in here. So as we get into this, you're going to notice the three points, and I've asked, I have them underlined right here. Deny the cross, follow me. Those are the three dynamics, the three principles that Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, this is what you do. You see, the sentence concludes at the end there. So come after me, Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. So, let's take a look and see what does this actually mean. We're going to go back to the original Greek language, and we're going to take you back in time somewhat again. And using just good hermeneutics or Bible study methods, what we're going to do is we're going to explore to see what this is actually saying. Not from my point of view, not from other preachers' point of view, what directly is coming from the Word of God. That's what we need to always focus on. So, to begin with, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, come after me. What's he talking about here? 
relationship. This is our purpose in life. I remember years ago, I used to teach school, and I would, on the, on the first day of the, uh, the school year, I would ask my students, I would tell my students, actually, that on Fridays, halfway through the period on Friday, we're going to stop work. We're just going to stop whatever we're doing, um, lab work, whatever. We're just going to stop immediately, and for the last half of the period, we're just going to sit and talk. And you can ask any questions, and I'll answer them or whatever if I can. Uh, if you're going to ask me a calculus question, you've got to be crazy. Um, don't do that. But... I'll try and answer questions, and we'll just sit and we'll just talk. You know, we, I serve tea, hot chocolate, my wife would make treats and stuff, so we, that, was, that was school. <laughs> Any way to get some food and tea in there. Um, and we would do that, and I remember one time there was a student, thinking he was smart, raised his hand as I was explaining that this is how we're going to do it, and he says, you'll answer any question? I said, yeah, if I can. He says, well, what's the purpose of life? I said, well, I thought you were going to ask me something difficult, like a calculus question. I said, this is easy. We're created beings, created by God, to have a personal relationship with him. That is the purpose of life. It doesn't mean necessarily you have to go to the mission field like Africa or some. It just means to have a personal relationship with Christ. That is your purpose in life. And until I told him you would fulfill that, your purpose in life, you will never find fulfillment in your life. Many people miss this. They fill it up with trying to get jobs, cars, who they're going to marry, all this other stuff, trying to find their purpose. But our direct purpose, the reason we were created, is to have a personal relationship with Christ, with God. That's why we're here. And he goes, oh, that's it. I mean, that's, that's the reason we are here. So, um, now... Take you back here. Now, as we know, Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And he had disciples that followed him around and stuff. And to let you understand how this went back in ancient times and stuff, you see, a rabbi um, would have disciples, and these disciples would follow, follow this rabbi everywhere. Um, you would go with a rabbi for a couple of years, and you would follow. What um, If he stopped someplace to eat, you stopped there and you ate. If you're traveling through the fields and, and like he's taking you on a field trip or whatever, and this is where um, we're going to sleep, like in a garden or something like that, then you're going to sleep in the garden. And whatever he did, you did. You just followed him all the time, gleaning as much information as you possibly could from him for the short time that you are a disciple. That was what it was to be a disciple. And you get into a close relationship doing that. They became very, very close. I'm just curious. Um, has anyone here ever been in a carpool? Okay, I, I did that for a couple of years. I tried carpooling with some other teachers. There were three of us that we carpooled together. I will say, that it, the funny thing was, um, one was a business teacher, one was a Spanish teacher, and then there was me, the biologist. So our fields and interests were very different. And as we traveled in the car, they were like that too. But even so, <laughs> we, we traveled and we would talk. It was a 25-minute drive to the school. And as that year went on, um, we got to be pretty pretty close. We started doing things and, 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 you know, talking a lot more. And we got to be closer friends because we're stuck together in that little car and that little box traveling for some time. But the point is, what I'm trying to say here is, um, there was conversation taking place. Conversing is a part of the following practice. This following. Conversing. And we need to have conversations with God to fulfill your purpose in life 
to have a close personal relationship with Christ? Once you become born again, that doesn't, that doesn't end it, folks. That's the, that's the new birth. Now you grow. God did his part in saving us. Now, it's not like we sit back and just let God, okay, God, I'm, I'm now a born-again Christian. I'm okay. Uh, you just do everything, and I'll just sit back and just reap the, the benefits of life. No, there are things we have to do also that we need to have, and this, this takes effort on our part, to have conversations with God. Well, how do you have a conversation with God? First of all, you read his word. A couple of years ago, a lady came up to me and she said, boy, Michael, I really wish I could hear God's voice. It, you know, if I could just audibly hear God and, and him to tell me, like if I could talk to him and tell him my problems and then I could just hear him give me the answer. I said, he has. Huh? He wrote you 66 love letters. Why don't you take one of the love letters out and read them? She goes, oh. I said, everything he wants you to know is there. The answers for life's problems are there. Those of you who are college students in here, the book of Proverbs, read the opening chapters. It's written to young people about how to be wise, how not to make foolish mistakes in life. I mean, this, these 66 love letters are amazing. I don't know, does anybody in here, when you were dating that spouse sitting next to you or, or uh, dating some significant person, did you ever get love letters? Okay, I, oh boy, I just put some people on the spot. I just saw some, I won't point, I'm gonna close my eyes. But some husbands and wives, boy, they just looked at each other. One couple looked at each other at the same time, heads rotated in, and there was smiling. There was another one, the wife turned, looked at him, she's looking, he turns slowly, looks, and she nods, and he's like, mm. <laughs> I'm not gonna point out anybody in here, but I tell you, from this point of view, it was great. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> now, so not to embarrass anyone. I'm afraid to ask the next question. Do you ever take those, I mean, you, you probably saved them. Did you, you ever take them out and read them? Yeah, if they're treasured things. Folks, God did the same thing with us. Oh, I felt like Peter Rockhold there for a second. I'm starting to geek around here as he would say it. <laughs> but, they're precious love letters. Why don't we read them? Or when people say, Michael, I don't have time to read the Bible. Do you know how long it takes you to read the book of Obadiah? You could read that. Most people, average reading speed, can read that book in less than two minutes. Jonah, four little chapters, not even a hundred sentences. You could read that book if you get cable on WGN, television, when they run a commercial break, you could read that book, Obadiah, and probably the book of Ruth during one of their commercial breaks. <laughs> it's like they have four commercial breaks per hour, four 15-minute breaks. Um, but prayer, or I'm sorry, reading our Bibles is so important. That's how God speaks to us today. And it's the primary way he speaks to us today. Read his word. The second part in a conversation, I mean, that's, that's listening to God. The second part of a conversation is talking and conversing back, and that's, that's prayer. 
Read your Bible, pray every day. When I was a little kid, we used to sing that in Sunday school. Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Anybody know that song? Wow, there's a lot of hands up. I won't say it. That unfortunately, nobody is really a teenager raising their hand with that song, but that's a great song. And it says at the end, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And you grow, grow. Anyway, we'll keep going. <laughs> it's true. Those child songs like that, it's true. Have a conversation with God. That is so important in our relationship to have these conversations. And conversation is a two-mode means of communicating. It's so important that we communicate with God. We need to do this. You know, a one-mode means of communication is called a lecture. No. We need to have two-way communication here, just like you would your spouse or the person you're dating or wanting to date or wanting to marry. Don't you long to have conversations with that person? Why do we say, oh, I become a Christian. Wow, now I'm done. I'm saved. I don't have to do anything. Uh-uh. No. God never says that. That's not, what we're, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's opening the door into this relationship. And as I've said before, sitting daily in conversation with God changes you. It does. God loves and wants to change us. He's trying to conform us to be more like Christ. How do we do that? Unless we see and read the love letters and listen to God on how to do this. It's so important. A couple of, uh, or last summer, a girl came up to me. She says, my, my spiritual life is just not going. It's, I've, I, I can't see any spiritual growth. I asked her. I said, how often do you read your Bible? She says, um, I don't. How often do you pray? I don't do that either. I said, well, duh. How do you expect to grow in a relationship unless you are talking? Dr. Marks, we talked about him earlier in a, in a little commercial here this morning. Um, I was talking to him a couple of years ago. He said, yeah, one of the number one reasons marriages fail, lack of communication. Same thing's true with relationships with friends and stuff. One of the, the killers of a relationship, stop communicating. You want to increase your relationship, you communicate. So, it's so important that we do this. That's the first part of what Jesus is saying here, this relationship aspect. Um, the first dynamic is to deny oneself. To deny oneself. That is the first dynamic now. After this relationship, he says, the first dynamic, how do I do this? You deny yourself. What is Jesus saying here in this to deny myself? I mean, how, how do you, what does this mean? What's he saying? Well, first of all, how do you view yourself in your relationship with Jesus? We need to think about this for a second. How do you actually view yourself in your relationship with God? How do you view it? Now, I'll give you a great example. Paul gives us a really good synopsis. He answers this question. In Galatians chapter 2, verses uh, 19 and 20, he's, he puts how he views himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul's perspective. That's a great, healthy perspective, giving us an idea of how we should be. So now the question is, how do you view yourself in your relationship with Jesus? Because the position that you view yourself in a relationship actually influences the relationship. 
The great Bible teacher, Dwight L. Moody, wrote, I have more problems with myself than I have with any other person or thing. I can relate with that. Or, I love, I was listening to um, a broadcast, a radio broadcast, by the late uh, great Bible teacher, Howard Hendricks. And he, he used to pray this. I, I love this. He said in this radio address, I had to write this down. He said, when I, uh, when I first got married, I used to pray, Oh, Lord, change my wife. Oh, Lord, change my wife. Later, he says, when I got a little wiser, I changed my prayer to, Oh, Lord, please change my wife's husband. The problems are usually internal. You see, the greatest problem that we have in following Christ, the greatest problem in following Jesus, being a true follower of Jesus, is us. We get in the way of the relationship. We mess it up. And just like, just like any relationship, when you put your desires, when you put your wishes ahead of someone else, you're not denying yourself. Jesus says we have to deny ourselves. To be a follower of Christ, you need to deny yourself. That's what he is saying here. And we, many times, will get right in the way of this. God wants self-denial to be part of the normal pattern of our life. Oh, on occasion, we might uh, think of another person first, you know, and, oh, well, I'll let them go in line, or I'll let this person, heavy traffic, I'll go ahead and let them get out, or I'll do this for my spouse, you know, to, I'll take out the garbage. I know it annoys her when I don't do this, so I'll take out the garbage this one time. But too often, this is not the, the norm. These become special occasions. God is saying, no, this is supposed to be the norm what we're supposed to be like all the time. That's what he is saying he wants us to be like. Now, you see, the word here that we're talking about, the word for deny, is aparoneomai. That's the Greek word, going back to the Greek. And what it means is literally to disown. To disown. Realizing, now, do you see, this is a conscious act. It's something we have to do. Chuck Swindoll said, we Christians need to get rid of the idea that we just sit back and let God do everything and we do nothing. No. God does the saving. He has to. He's the only one who can do that. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. But that is not the end point. That is the new birth. As Paul writes, we become a new creation. Now we have conscious act. We need to disown self. Paroneomai. It's something that is deliberate. A few years ago here at camp, during one of the kids' camp, we had a commercial for kids' camp. There was, there was a boy who came, and uh, he was found, a couple of days into the camp, this week-long camp, he was found sitting down not too far from the fish shanty down by the lake, all by himself, very depressed. His counselor saw him. This counselor was a great counselor. Walked down there, sat down next to the kid and said, so how's it going? What's the matter? And this little boy said, I'm, uh, I'm not happy here at all. I'm not having fun. I have no friends. I just don't like it here. The wise counselor said to him, why do you think it's like that? And of course, he said, I don't know why. No one wants to be my friend. Nobody likes me here. 
The counselor took this as a teaching moment and said, you know, I've been watching you in the cabin and at meals and in the games and stuff that we play, and I noticed at mealtime, you're always the one who takes the first and the biggest piece of food off the plate. When we play games, you're always wanting to be the first in line. We do other things here, you're always wanting to be the leader. He told the boy, why don't you try this for the rest of the week? I challenge you. Be the last person to take the food at the table. Be the last person to be in line. And don't try and be the leader at anything. Just participate. The boy, because he was so depressed, tried it. By the end of the week, he became one of the most popular kids in camp. That counselor taught something, a paroneomai. That little boy started to catch it. You deny yourself, things are different. That boy learned a paroneomai from that counselor. And now, some people will say, well, wait a minute, if you're going to disown like this, this is what this is talking about and stuff, well, then you just become a doormat. No, that's not saying you become a doormat. Paroneomai is denying and putting someone else's best interests forward. That's what this is about. It's not becoming a doormat. It's thinking of the other person. And it's giving in for the other person's best benefit. What is best for the other person? Now, what's the opposite of this? The opposite of paroneomai? Pride. That's, that's the opposite side of this. It's pride. How many times do we forfeit peace in our homes because we're trying to get our own way? I know in my own home, raising uh, my, kid, my three girls um, with my wife, there have been times things didn't go too smoothly. And I would sometimes get very upset in things. And I'll tell you, after I sat back many times, I sit back after this happens, after we've had some dis, um, disharmony, shall I put it in the home, I sit there and I think, boy, Michael, did you really screw up? Because all you're trying to do is put your own self-interest first. Pride. How much better our lives, our marriages would be if we applied what God is saying here, Pyronehemiah, not just in our relationship with him, but also in our relationship with everybody. A few years back, I got to tell you, I came, uh, coming here to Ford, I think it was the second year I was here, I got a phone call one morning, and it was a former student of mine. And she says, hi, Michael, I found your phone number. Finally been trying to find you and stuff. I, you know, we talked for a little bit, and we're good friends. She'd been at my house many times. She was a good student of mine, good friend, really good friend, close friend. And she says, well, guess what? The reason I'm calling is I'm getting married. I said, oh, really? Who are you marrying? Nobody you know. Um, somebody I met. Um, he's going into ministry. He's going to be a pastor. He's in seminary right now, but we're going to get married. And I said, well, that's great. And she says, uh, but i got to ask you something. I go, what? She says, well, you probably don't know this, but I studied you and Denise for quite a few years and, and your marriage. And I go, oh, boy. <laughs> And she says, to me, you guys always had the perfect marriage. I go, <laughs> really? Um, I said, yeah, I, I denied that immediately. I said, no, no. She says, but you never scream. You never yelled. Times I've been at your house, every, you guys sit around a table, you laugh, you joke. Um, it's just, it, it's like a Brady Bunch situation. And I love that. And I want that in my marriage. So I want to know, what's the secret? I said, whoa. I said, 
That's a good question. I said, there's a word. It's called self-denial. I said, if both spouses go into a marriage with a paraneomai, wow. I said, that's the key. That's one of the keys to a good marriage. Um, maybe not the key, but that is a major key. You deny yourself, you put your spouse first. Yeah, the times that doesn't happen, that's usually when the arguments come. That's what we're talking about. Well, I've got to tell you, though, some people say that what Jesus is teaching here is Lent. This is not Lent. Though there are denominations that actually teach what this verse is saying is Lent, that you're going to give up, like, cheese for a, a month or a couple of weeks, or I'm going to give up chocolate. God forbid. Um, <laughs> going to give up cake. I mean, I've heard some of the bizarre things. I'm cer certain many of you are laughing, and many of you have heard things too. This is not what this is talking about. But this, some denominations use this to teach this doctrine of Lent. This is not Lent. Because what Christ is saying, it's not a temporary thing. This is a way of life. This is becoming the norm. That's what this is talking about. So now, let, let's put this on our relationship with Christ. Do we deny ourselves for Christ? Do we do this? I mean, this is not the world's way of looking at things, is it? You don't do the deny yourself for Christ. Oh, just deny yourself at all. I mean, what's our slogan today? If it feels good, do it. Go for it. Take it. We see it on T-shirts and all sorts of advertising. It's just the opposite of what Christ is saying. Mm -mm. No, that is not what we're supposed to be doing. Um, but do we deny ourselves for Christ? You see, the world is constantly telling us, no, self-indulge. You're the most important person. Do it. If, if it's good for you, do it. Don't worry about the other person. No, that's the world's worldview. Jesus says, no, you deny yourself. Aparoneomai, you, you don't do that. You put other people. I mean, this goes back to Leviticus and the original Torah law. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. I am God. Jesus reiterates it. The two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the commandments are put into these two. Jesus is saying, you deny yourself. Totally different than what the world says. Totally different. And the world thinks we're absolutely nuts. But Jesus is saying, if we're self-indulgent, we lose our life. Because look what Matthew 16 said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. God hates pride. He hates pride. Satan's downfall, pride. Actually, if you get into any type of sin, any one of the, break any one of the Ten Commandments, pride is somewhere interwoven with that. Every single one. It is such a thing, and God hates pride. So, well, if we lose our life, well, if you're going to be self-indulgent, God is saying you're going to lose. But if we deny ourselves, we win. Well, you know, well, Michael, what, what, what do we win? What's, what's the thing we're winning here? Well, Jesus tells us. We, we're winning treasure in heaven, eternal life with God. Remember, this is not for salvation. This is what happens after salvation. You know. So, anyway, the second dynamic. First of all, we're told to deny ourselves. The second dynamic, Jesus says... If you're going to be my follower in a close relationship with me, the second thing, take up your cross. Now, we know what crucifixion is. We went through that one. 
We know crucifixion. And in our world, we've made it into symbols and jewelry and stuff like this. We've, we've sort of lost ideas of what crucifixion was, but this week we've gone through what that is. And during the time of Jesus in the first century, it was the most horrible way for a person to die, as we've talked about this week. It was so extreme that, like I say, Roman citizens were excused from it. Um, They were uh, immune to that type of a punishment. They couldn't get that. Um, And in this dynamic, I I like in John MacArthur, um, in a book called Hard to Believe, he, he mentions this. He says, we preach a shameful message when we preach of Jesus on the cross. Being crucified was a degrading insult. And the idea of worshiping someone who had been crucified was absolutely unimaginable. In the first century, it was. Even even the Jews understood how degrading it was. I mean, a person was naked and scourged and all this kind of thing. It was was done to the most hideous of crimes. Uh, And criminals, that's who they did this to. Uh, And it goes back, as I told you in some of the history when we talked about it. Darius I, he crucified 3,000 Babylonians. Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 inhabitants of the city of Tyre. Uh, During the Hasmonean period, Alexander Janaeus, great uh, godfather of Miriam, the wife of Herod the Great, crucified 800 Pharisees at one time. To a Jew, being hung on the cross was deplorable. It actually meant being cursed of God. Did you guys ever notice in the New Testament, whenever Jesus got the people upset with him, do you notice what they did when they're going to kill him? They picked up stones. Because that was the Jewish way of capital punishment, was to stoning. But when they finally get him, did you ever think of this? During the whole passion thing, did they ever mention stoning? Not once. They immediately changed their mind and they went to crucifixion. Why? Prophecy. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. What God tells the Jews, the Hebrews, about being hung on a tree. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree. Stop right here. Remember? They got Jesus off the tree before nightfall. Continuing. But you shall bury him the same day. Here we go. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land, that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Crucifixion, hanging on a tree, was a curse of God. Stoning was not necessarily a curse of God. Thus, they changed their mind when they finally get Jesus, let's really do it to him, and let's put him on a tree, which God says he is now cursed of God. He had to be, because he's taking on the sins of everyone. And he needed to have blood shed. Stoning... Sometimes you didn't bleed much. Blood was necessary. It was a sacrifice on a wooden cross, which they used wood also in the altars when they would sacrifice the animals. This is all prophetic. (laughs) Now, some teach that this saying that Jesus says here, take up your cross, means the problems and the burdens that you must carry through your life. This is not what Jesus is talking about. No, no. I actually had a person come up to me, a Christian person come up to me a couple of years ago here and said, um, they were talk, we were talking about this verse, and she said to me, she says, well, the cross I have to bear is obesity. 
That's my cross. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I had another person um, tell me, well, I have a herniated disc in my back, and I guess that's the cross that Christ has given me that I have to carry. No, that is not what this is talking about. That is not what this is talking about. Jesus is using the term cross because, for one, it's showing what his death is going to be. He's predicting his death, and he is telling us that um, you know this is... <laughs> This is really strong. This isn't some little inconvenience that you're having to experience in your life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Take up his cross means to, first, identify with Christ in the shame. As I showed you, crucifixion was shameful. You were naked before everybody. They scourged you naked. They crucified you naked. Get out of your mind all those beautiful art pieces that have, uh, and paintings and stuff where Christ is actually hanging up there and they put some clothes on him. When you were crucified, you had no clothes. It was shameful. Not only that, take up your cross means rejection. People are going to reject you. For being a follower of Christ, you will not become, in most cases, the most popular person in school or the most popular person at work. On the other hand, you will become a target. And he's saying, you've got to be able to, to handle that. And third, suffering. You become a follower of Christ and you are vocal about it. I'm telling you, you're going to suffer. Now, this is not North Korea. This is not China. This is not Burma. Thank God. Our country is not there. Though some believe we are quickly spiraling downward because we are not following Christ. That's another topic. But I'll tell you, I've heard this. I'm sure many of you have heard this too. I've heard it preached from the pulpit this. Being a follower of Jesus means you will never have problems or troubles. I can, I can tell you. One time I was down in the Bahamas, when I was living in the Bahamas, there was a church service going on on a Sunday morning, and a person came forward, the pastor who was preaching um, uh, told anybody who wants to accept Jesus Christ, he did the gospel presentation, and a lady came forward, and um, I was sitting over on the side, and the pastor uh, just looked at me and he says, Michael, would you, would you talk with her and take her over and pray with her over in one of the side rooms? I said, sure. So I took this lady, and we walked over into one of the, the side rooms, the classroom there, we, we walk in there, and I sit down with her, and I said, so you want, to be, you want to become a Christian? She goes, yes, I really want to become a Christian. I'm so excited. I want to become a Christian. I said, okay, that's, that's awesome. Why? You know what she told me? Did you see the car I drove in that's out in the parking lot? Did you see, did you see my car? I go, no. I'm really puzzled. No. It's the rustiest, junkiest thing. I know if I become a Christian, God's going to bless me. I'll get a new car. And I don't like my job. And I know if I become a Christian, God's going to bless me. I'm going to get a new a better job. And I have, right now, I'm renting an apartment, and I don't like my roommate. And I know if I become a Christian, God's going to bless me. He'll give me a house. So she's just going through this shopping list of things, and I'm like, lady, you, do you understand what becoming a Christian is? She had no idea. Now, our pastor did not preach this, but that was her take on it. I've heard this on radio shows. I've seen this on television shows. There are many people, make, pastors make millions of dollars by preaching this. Folks, um, this is not true. This is not true whatsoever. Matter of fact, um, pretty much just the opposite is true. For what did Jesus say? In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, look what he says about people who follow him. If the world hates you, know that it hated me 
before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and boy did they, they will also persecute you. Are you able to handle that part of a relationship in following Christ? Because this is saying that Christians are going to be persecuted. They're going to go through hardships. God never promises us on this life, on this planet, in this time, a rose garden of just petals to walk on. No, instead, there's thorns everywhere. And when you become a Christian, sometimes your hardships increase because you're going to be persecuted more. But the rewards so outweigh the suffering. It really does. Now, Jesus never said that you'll get new cars and everything like that. No. You will go through tough times. Jesus is actually specifically speaking of the most dreadful, the most hideous, the most revolting, the most repulsive and gruesome death that a person can have thrust upon him when he says, take up your cross. And he tells us to be 100% willing to walk that road. He also tells us that if you are not that willing, you're not worthy to be his follower. Are you that dedicated? that dedicated of a follower? You ever read Fox's books, or Fox's book of martyrs? And what the early Christians went through? There's been some new ones too. Jesus Freaks, more popular book, basically the same thing. How Christians are persecuted and stuff. And you think, well, I could probably handle that. Could you handle this? My brother was teaching at a Christian school. One night, he decided to go out for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, this has nothing to do with against Kentucky Fried Chicken. But he went to a Kentucky Fried Chicken. Walked in there. He's standing up there at the counter trying to decide what to order. He was the only person in the store. It was just a young girl, uh, lady right behind the counter. And uh, nobody else there. And he's standing there, and he's looking at the counter trying to figure out what he wants. Door opens. He had been followed. There was a guy who had been following him, and he had no idea. Um, the guy came in looked around, pulled out a gun, put it under my brother's head, just came up, put it right underneath his, his, his chin, pushed him up against the wall and said, okay, Christian, right now, deny Christ or I'm going to blow your head off. I've been following you around town and I hate you and now's your moment. You're mine. What would you do? Alan said, pull the trigger. The girl behind the counter immediately spoke up. She says, I pushed the alarm. The police are on their way. If you run now, you might get away. He didn't fire. He took off and ran. Christians don't go through hard times. When I was in high school, I was sort of a, I know this will be hard for some of you to understand, but I was sort of an odd individual. (laughs) 
I had on my high school jacket, instead of the school name on the back, I had One Way Jesus sewed on my back of my, my jacket. In my pockets on one side, I had Christian tracts, and the other one I had like Jesus stickers and little Gospels of John. And I viewed my high school as a mission field, and I was going around, I'd be sitting around. I got threatened by the principal, one of the principals all the time. He was an atheist. He absolutely hated me. Um, <laughs> I one time was sitting in, I went into the cafeteria, it was time, it was a big study hall thing, and um, I went over to a table, huge high school, some, some people I didn't know, I just sat down and I started saying, hey, you know, what would happen if God, you know, if you just died right now? 17 people died in my high school, so this wasn't an odd question to ask. What do you think would happen if you just died right now? You know, I'd be witnessing to them. This one day, the principal came in, saw me doing this. Back then, I only not only had hair, I had long hair. Um, all of us did, all guys did, because we told our parents we wanted to be very individual, so we all looked like each other. Um, <laughs> this principal grabbed me by the back of my hair, yanked me on the chair, I was in a metal folding chair, yanked me down the ground, I fell, then he dragged me over, I mean, today he loses his license, but he dragged me up to the wall, threw me up against the wall, boom, then put his hands on either side of my face, leaning into my face. He says, I hate when you do this. I've had enough of this Christian stuff. If you do this one more time, you pass out one more track, you pass out one more Bible, I will see to it you never graduate. And beside, I know you're the guy that keeps going in the bathroom, unrolling the toilet paper, and putting tracks and Jesus stickers in it as you roll it back up. Guilty. <laughs> he said, do you hear me? Yes, I hear you. You understand me? Yes, I understand you. Good. Now go on. Okay, thanks. Now, I'm sorry, we got interrupted. Um, what do you think would happen if you died? And he just, ah, and he walked out of the cafeteria like that. He did make my life pretty miserable. I actually had a teacher after school one night um, sort of get me and kick me around and stuff like this. Um, I was with a couple of friends. We were having a little prayer time after school in front of the lockers. And I, I, I can't prove it, but I have a feeling that he got set, uh, this teacher got sent for direct, uh, on direct authority by this principal to sort of rough me up. One night I was walking home from school, and I had four guys. They were not students. They were four adults waiting for me in the parking lot. Um, and as I was walking through there, uh, they, they jumped me. And the reason they did it, they told me. They, they said, okay, preacher. I'm no preacher. You guys know I'm no preacher. <laughs> okay, preacher, we're going to get you now. And so what do you do in a situation like that? Well, I, um, you know, some people just, ah, scream and everything. I thought, well, these are four lost guys. Hey, guys, before you beat me up, do you know that Jesus died for you? And I just kept preaching to them. And telling them about the John 3, 16, I'm explaining it. And, you know, they're, they're pushing me around at first, and I just kept doing Finally, the leader says, this guy's weird. Let's just get out of here. And they, they left. And I walked home. <laughs> Are you guys willing? I mean, my life is nothing. These... I'm sure many of you in this room, I know that there are people in this room that have endured even worse than me. This was just high school. And I know that people have done this. Like I say... Listen to what's going on in the, you know, the, the, the martyrdoms, the, the terrible things that's going on to Christians today. 
It does take place. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to do this? Are you willing to take up your cross? Are you willing to deny yourself and your life for his? That's what he's saying. Again, looking at another quote here. In his book, Hard to Believe, MacArthur writes, John MacArthur, disciples understood that to take up the cross meant willingness to die any death. It meant abandoning self to the lordship of Christ. The love of Christ has to overrule both the powerful appeal of family love and the more powerful instinct of self-preservation. Are you that willing? God says that's what you have to be. The third dynamic and the last one here. He says, follow me. Follow me. Now, this is the Greek word, akalalutheo. And what this word means, it's one of the two words used in the New Testament very commonly for the word follow. This means to, uh, it, to be in the same way with, to accompany. Remember this whole thing I told you about how disciples were? That's what this was. To describe how a disciple, you, you, you went with the, the, the rabbi, you ate what he ate, you slept where he slept, you did what he did. That was this, that's a kala utheil, that's, that's this word. And that's what Jesus is saying you have to be able to do. That's what he's saying we're supposed to do. Now, a call of theo does not mean to just walk behind a person. It's like, you know, okay, three steps back, one to the right, or something like No, that's not what this is, and you just follow along. That is not what this is talking about. It's talking about being with the person and being in the same way, in the same company, participating with them and following in their way of life. That's what this is saying. That's what we're supposed to be. Like I say, you go back into the first century, this is the word that was used to describe how disciples followed their rabbis all around. That's what they did. And Jesus is saying, are you willing to do this? This is conscious. These are three things that are conscious that we have to ask for. And maybe we should pray very commonly and, and very often in our, our lives, dear spirit, help me to deny, help me to take up the cross, to be willing to do this and to be willing to follow you. I mean, Peter was married. You don't hear much about his wife as he was being a disciple. You see, to be a disciple, you basically had to really count the cost on things. As a teacher traveled place to place, a disciple's accompaniment would, would be gleaning as much as possible, but you had a decision to make when you go to look for a rabbi. You would pick a rabbi that would be you know, very respected, somebody you want to know and stuff like this, and then you would sacrifice. Well, wait a minute, what do you mean sacrifice? To follow him as a disciple would normally have been made only after much deliberation. Because of a sacrifice involved, the cost of following had to be taken into consideration. I'm lost, Michael. What are you talking about? You see, in the first century, at the time of Christ, since he's teaching this, it was like this. A rabbi. You pick out the rabbi you want to follow. Now, you have to, first of all, can I take off work for a couple of years to follow him. Have I saved enough money to be able to follow him? Am I going to be able to say goodbye to my family while I go and get trained by this rabbi? That's why they had to count the cost before becoming a follower. There is sacrifice involved. And it wasn't, well, I think I'll just follow for a day or two. No. A rabbi would not accept 
a pupil like that. You followed with them all the time. For the next couple of years, whatever the, the, the length of time, two, three years, you would be with them. In Jesus' case, he was with his disciples for about three and a half years. That's remarkable sacrifice. And that's what Christ is saying. And you pattern your life off of that. That becomes the norm. That's what we're talking about with this Akalulutheo. Now, as I stated, the English, in our present worldview, that's not what this means, but that's what it was in the first century. And many people today claim to be followers of Jesus, but when you examine people's lives, you can see there's no resemblance to Jesus whatsoever in them. And Jesus talks about this too. He says that not all who claim as his Lord are going to be real followers. Do you remember at one point Jesus had sent out over 70 disciples? 70? He just didn't have 12. At one point he had over 70 disciples he sent out. Yet when it came down into the garden, how many was he left with? Just 12. The other ones, they weren't true followers. And even one of the 12 he didn't make it to the garden, but he was at the Last Supper. Even one of the 12 was not a true follower. That's a whole other lesson I can go on, but I'm just going to say this. What Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, to me, this is the most sad passage in the entire Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Oh, my gosh, this is sad. Look what... Look how this continues. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then, well, I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Do you realize that Judas Iscariot actually helped perform miracles? At the miracle of the 5,000, Jesus broke the bread and the fish very quickly, put it into baskets. Then the baskets were distributed to the disciples. It was when the disciples were passing them out that that's where this was all multiplying. Because it was late in the evening when this happened. Jesus wasn't, you know, blinding speed like a robot here, ripping pieces of fish all apart. He broke it, he put it in baskets, and he told his disciples, now distribute it. Judas Iscariot was one of those. He was the leader, one of the leaders of the disciples. He was a person who carried the money bag. He was the treasure. That's an official person. And he was walking around doing all this stuff and doing, participating in miracles, seeing miracles and all this, and you think he's in heaven right now? And he would be one, he called Jesus Lord. It even says at some point after that, when they were in the boat and, and the disciples were, were um, scared to death, the boat was going down because of the storm, Jesus comes walking out there. When Jesus gets into the boat, the disciples then worship him. It's the first time recorded that the disciples actually worshiped, bowed down and worshiped. Judas Iscariot was right there. I never knew you. Depart from me. I don't think it gets any sadder than that. I like how the late Bible scholar William Barclay, I don't always agree with his theology, but he wrote a book called The Gospel of Luke, and in this he says this, it is possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple. 
a camp follower without being a soldier of the king, to be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once, someone was talking to a great scholar about a, young, a younger man. He said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The teacher answered, devastatingly. <laughs> he may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. There is a difference between attending lectures and being a student. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in the church, there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? Are you a true follower of Jesus? Jesus gave us three conditions once we become a Christian to deepen our relationship. Are you doing those? Or is it time I start, wow, the Spirit is telling me I need to be more self-denying, be willing to suffer, and to be a true follower. Father, we thank you for this time. We just ask right now, Lord, I just want to open up your salvation, the grace that you give to anyone who is here right now, that if there's somebody here who says, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that right now, this is a time that they can come forward, not literally necessarily, but Lord, that they can just sit there and just say, because salvation, it's not by the words, it's what's taking place in our heart. That We know that we are saved by faith through a gift, a grace gift that we get from you that, Lord, all we have to do is just admit, yes, I'm a sinner. Lord, I repent. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to become my Lord. Save me. And we know that anybody who earnestly, truly, with heartfelt meaning, prays that, that you would save. Lord, there's some people here maybe that are saying, I've I am a Christian. I've never really been following Christ that much. I haven't been a good follower, but Lord, right now, I make a vow to you that I want to change, and may your spirit, Lord, help me, because I cannot do it by myself. It is the spirit of God that changes us. Maybe someone is here and saying, I have not been reading your love letters. Forgive me, God. Change me. Give me a burning desire that every day, I would want to spend some time with you. And Lord, I know it'll be a struggle as they first start, but your spirit helps when we lean upon you. We're not making Satan happy with any of this, and he's going to try and fight us. But Lord, I pray right now for all of those who are in here and those who are listening on the internet or in other means that, Lord, you protect them, that your spirit, who is more powerful than the powers of Satan and darkness, that your spirit, Lord, can do this in us. Help us to have this desire to make this conscious effort to be a true follower of Jesus. Maybe someone is here and saying, Lord, I've never followed you in baptism. I want to make a public declaration today. And if they do that, I ask that they come and let me know. In any situation, Lord, please talk to Ron, Tom, someone on staff here. I'll stick around here in the front, but Lord, speak to your children. Help us to be true followers of Jesus Christ. 
In your holy, righteous, and wonderful name, we pray, dear Jesus, amen. Well, good evening. I don't know how I can even follow that. It looked like one professional singer and all these background artists behind her. It was, it was great. I loved it. Oh. Now, this, this week has been a tremendous blessing. Um, I have been extremely blessed by, by y'all, and I, I thank you very much. I also I want to point out one thing. I want to thank my staff down at the Nature Center that put in extra duties so that I could be able to come in here and speak to you guys and spend some time with you and stuff like that. They did a great job, and I want to say thank you to them for the work that they did. But this has been an awesome week. Though the, the weather hasn't been always so beautiful, but at least it ended great. I mean, we can't hardly get better than this one. This was a, this was a great day. Woo-hoo, yeah. Thank you, Lord. Well, I'm just going to take a few moments here just to, to go back over a little bit of what we talked about this week, because what we covered in here... For those, uh, if you'll recall, or if you weren't here for all of them, we talked about, started off the week talking about who Jesus is. That's an important thing, to know who Jesus is. Wouldn't you agree? Very good, yes. And so we went back into the, uh, the scriptures to see exactly who is Jesus. And it says in Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days he spoke to us, this is speaking about God, by his Son, and we learned what that means, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it said that God has appointed him heir of all things, meaning that he will inherit everything in creation, and that he made the universe. Jesus is the creator God. He's not a secondary God or a little God. He's the one who created everything. And we learned that. It says that he's the son of the radiance of God. Jesus has the shiny glory that God has called Shekinah glory. And at the transfiguration, he even demonstrated that. And it says that he's the exact impression, the exact imprint of God. Jesus is totally 100% God. He's not a lesser thing. And it says that um, he, uh, with his power, he sustains all of creation. And it says that he made purification for sins. He died for us, and he shed his blood for us. And then he sat down at the right-hand right hand majesty of God on high, which is where he's at today. He's alive and well, and he is sitting on the throne of God. But going back then, talking about the purification of sin, we studied this week sort of a gruesome thing, what crucifixion is. And it wasn't something very pretty. It wasn't something that anybody would ever want to willingly go through. It's the most hideous, the most evil, the most diabolical way man has ever figured out on how to kill another man. And Jesus did that, and he shed his blood. And the reason he shed his blood was because of why we exist. Do you know that we exist because God created us to walk with him? In the Garden of Eden, when God created Adam and Eve, they walked together. That's what we were created for. God also created angels, but he made us special. No, we're not powerful like the angels, but God made us very, very special in his own image that we would have a personal relationship with him, that we would walk with God. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, and that's why we were created, to walk with God, to have a personal, close relationship with God, that we would talk with God, that we would listen to God, 
We tell him things. He tell us things. That's why we were created. But God is holy. The greatest description we can think of, of all the things that make up God, is that he is holy. He is so holy we can't even comprehend it. And God cannot have sin in his presence. We choose to disobey. Some people tell me, I can't believe that God would lovingly send people to hell. Folks, God doesn't send people to hell. We choose to go there. He's made a way for us not to go there, and people reject it. It's not that God is sending them to hell. We reject his free offer of grace. But because we sin, the only way to get rid of our sin, we can never, ever do good enough deeds. Teaching Sunday school, going on a missions trip, putting money in an offering, that will not get you right with God. The only way to get rid of sin is by blood. So Jesus had to come and take our place in death. He's totally God. He's totally human. And it's what it took to take away our sin. It had to be somebody who was perfect, who had never sinned. That was God. It had to be somebody who was human to represent all people. That's why he was human. And that's why Christmas is so important besides getting presents. That's why Christmas is so important. God came and became human. And that was what was so important. But because we sin, we can't be with God. So God had a plan to take everybody's sin and put it just on one person, and that was Jesus. And to be hung on a tree was to be cursed of God. God cursed his sin. So God had Jesus die on the cross. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that. They could have, he could have stopped at any moment, but he went through it all, through the most horrible death possible, simply because he loves us. And it was the only way for us to get back with God. That's what that part was all about, the crucifixion. And we talked about how God actually, or Jesus actually went through all of the suffering and stuff simply because he loves us. That's what that was about. But it didn't end there. Even though Jesus was crucified, he was buried in the ground, he rose again, and he's alive today. And because of that, we talked about the resurrection, which is so important because that proved that Jesus is God and everything that he had said is real. And so we celebrate. That's why we go to church on Sundays and we meet together on Sundays because that's the day that Jesus rose from the, from the, uh, from the grave. It was on a Sunday. So Sunday morning, we like to get together and it's supposed to be a celebration. And that's what it is. So we talked about that. And then today... I laid a challenge. Our theme is follow me. And we took a look at a verse that was um, going back to uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And it says there in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. To have a relationship with God, there's three things there that we have to do. Once we are saved, what we must do is we have, to deny, uh, we have to deny ourselves, we have to take up the cross, and we have to follow Christ. Today I left you with a challenge on that. We explained what those three parts are. We need, all of us, need to put other people first. That is so important. 
Jesus was constantly not putting himself first. He was God, but he put other people first. He served people all the time. He was always thinking of us. We need to do the same thing. And if we do that, if we put other people's best interests first, how much better our marriages and our lives will be. Second, we have to be willing, as it says here, to take up the cross. In other words, be so sold out to God that we're willing to even die, to die for that. Even the most hideous type of death. And then to follow him, to do what he says, to be in this relationship. So I'm going to leave you with this challenge. We talked about salvation, that it's the only way of getting to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. But now, once we become Christians, some people have a tendency of being a secret Christian. That's not what God wants. And that is not what this is talking about. This is somebody who is willing to let people know that they are followers of Jesus Christ. So I challenge you. I double-dog dare you to let people know this gospel, this good news. I know at work, at school, in the neighborhood, with friends and stuff, sometimes it's very easy to sit back and just not let people know of your relationship with Jesus. But you know what Jesus said? You deny me in front of your friends, I will deny you in front of the Father. This is serious. I challenge you, please do not be a secret Christian. It takes guts. You might get persecuted. You might have hard times and stuff. Jesus said, they persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. But that's part of being a true Christian. There's nothing in here saying to be a secret Christian. So that's my challenge that I leave you with this, this evening. Don't keep it a secret. Don't keep it hidden. Let the world know. As Jesus said, go ye therefore into all the world, making disciples, making followers of me. That's what we're supposed to do. God bless you all. Thank you.